Marriage is built on choices. A successful marriage is built on making good choices. Even if you've not always made the best choices in the past, you are where you are, you've reached the point you've reached, maybe you didn't make the best choices leading up to marriage. You missed the, you missed the sermon on uh, godly principles of dating and courting and stuff like that. <laughs> so maybe you didn't make the best choices leading up to marriage, but you are where you are. The choices that you make from this moment forward still work and can still work for you. You can be confident that you're making the right choices if you allow God's word to guide you. That's the best <coughs> marriage advice that anyone's ever going to be able to give you. So it is time, no matter where you are on the spectrum of happiness, joy, or whatever, it is time to leave the past in the rearview mirror, the rearview mirror of your life, and move on to a better future. Sounds like I'm going all Joel Osteen on you. Uh, <laughs> hopefully will be a positive message. Turn to Ezekiel 18, if you would. Ezekiel 18, verse 21, 23. It says, but if a wicked person turns from all the sins they have committed. Let's take out the word, take out the word wicked there. And sins. And say if the, if the, the stupid person turns away from all the dumb things that they've been doing, or the uninformed person turns away from their ignorance and, you know, seeks knowledge. You could put a lot of different concepts in there. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins that they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live and they will not die. None of the offenses that they've committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things that they have done and are doing, they will live. And this is God's approach. You are not trapped in the past. You are not trapped in your past. So getting back to the primary focus here, your marriage. Your marriage will improve. I guarantee it. Your marriage will improve when you start putting God's word into practice. Now, the project will move a lot faster if both husband and wife are in agreement about God's law and God's love. But even if your mate is not with you on this, and that happens, even if your mate's not on the same page with you, one person can make a difference. You can make a difference. And I'm going to put aside uh, arguments about someone who's just, you know, will not be reconciled or will not, you know, is belligerent. But even if the person is just not with it, you know, you and what you do makes a difference. And furthermore, God, your creator, expects you to put his word into practice, even if you're the only one doing it. Even if everybody else in the world says, nah, but you know the truth, God expects you to do it. So we can apply that in a very broad and general way, but we could also apply it to marriage. Turn to 1 Peter 3, if you would. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. So it says here, wives, and I think it goes for both men and women, but here we're talking about the wife, and it says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands, so that any of them that do not believe the word, so if he's not on the same page with you, 
they will be won over with words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And he goes on and he explains a little bit more and adds more details to it. <coughs> this is God's expectation for you. You move forward with the positive plan. Don't, pay, you know, don't worry, don't let them keep you from doing it. Don't say, well, I'll start when they start. No, you start now. You start now. So I've got three, I said the title was Choices. Marriage is about choices. I have three choices. I think there's a lot more, but I'm going to boil it down to three to keep it simple. All right? We've got three choices I want to talk about. Choice one, the choice of, long, of, sorry, of lifelong commitment. Choice two, to love. Choice three, submission. So that's where we're going to go in the next, next little bit. Let's take a look at the first one, all right? The first choice, lifelong commitment. Very simple concept. I don't, we don't actually have to spend a lot of time on this, but let's take a look. We probably, let's, I don't really think we even need to turn there, but in Genesis 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore, a man, and again, I think you could also say this about a woman, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Now, if you're reading the King James, you, you see that word cleave. And you might wonder, well, what does cleave mean? You know, it's kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't really use that very much. I doubt that you've ever um, sat around a, um, a business meeting and heard anyone use the word cleave. To cleave. Well, in the NIV, it's translated to be joined. In the NLT, New Living Translation, you would read to be united in the um, English Standard Version, which I'm really enjoying going through my, right now, it says hold fast. I like that one a lot. The word is dabak, the Hebrew word if you want to go back to it, which means to stick with, to stick with. So a man shall leave his mother and father and stick with his wife. That's what it says. That's what it's getting at. Like glue. Lifelong commitment is a choice. It is a choice that you make, like all choices. You make it in your mind. It's a choice that the husband and the wife make. It's an agreement you make with one another. And it's an agreement you make with God. To stay faithful, loyal, and exclusive. It's a choice you make on the day that you are married, that wedding day. It's a choice. You're making a choice that day in front of witnesses and so forth. It's also a choice that you make every day, every day. And if you approach marriage that way from the very beginning, it's just a real leg up on everyone else. This is for it. This is for keeps. This is the real deal. But like I mentioned before, you know, if you haven't thought that way, the time is now to change your way of thinking and say from this moment on, this is my perspective. It's a choice that says whatever problems come our way, I'm going to stick with it, and we're going to work it out. A choice, at least in my mind, is not built on feelings. A choice is not built on feelings. I don't choose to do this because the feelings have just welled up inside. That's a very different thing. A choice is something that is, oh, I don't know, rational, logical. It sounds very cold. But a choice is something that's different from an emotion. I don't choose to do something necessarily because I feel it. I choose to do it for different reasons. 
Emotions are always changing. You know that. Sometimes they're hot and sometimes they're cold. And that, you know, if your choices about commitment were based on feelings, well, they could change as your emotions change. And you know your emotions change, like the, like the clouds and the weather in the sky, here one day and gone the next. So a choice of commitment is something different. Something different. What God is looking for and what he wants Marriage, of course, is filled with so many analogies to our relationship with God and our relationship to our eternal life. Uh, you can't ever explore them all in an hour. What God is looking for is not loyalty that comes with bursts of enthusiasm when you're feeling good, or when it suits you, when it's convenient, when it's going your way. Even commitments that's there most of the time is not good enough. What God is looking for is commitments that's there all the time. All the time. And that is why marriage vows, of course, contain phrases like for richer, for poorer, you know, no matter what the circumstances, and then till death do us part. Uh, those are not from Scripture, but I think they show that our society, at least in the past, understood this basic concept of commitment. Whether we do it or not is another matter, but Marriage is a choice of commitment. Now, God may allow events and circumstances to come along that will challenge your commitment. But you must choose, and as I said, every day you make the choice. You must make the choice to remain committed. I'm going to leave that there, and I'm going to move on to the next choice, which is to love. We'll spend a little more time on this, okay? I, I'm going to, I actually don't know, I haven't looked up the numbers, but I'm going to say um, at least half the songs ever sung are about love, okay? Now maybe I'm off by a bit, but I think we can all agree that when you listen to the songs that people sing, what's on our mind? Love. Love. We, we talk an awful lot about it. Um, it's a thrill. <laughs> it's a shot of adrenaline. And not having love, of course, can be just as emotional. Though there are plenty of songs about not having love, too. Wanting it. <laughs> and not having it. But are we really singing about love? Or is it desire? Are we singing about desire? Is that where the adrenaline comes from and that shot in the arm, the desire? Because they're different things. They're different things. I put it to you that God's word reveals to us that love is a choice. To love is a choice. Furthermore, that love is a choice of what we do rather than how we feel. So, love is a choice rather than an emotion. Rather than an emotion. Different from what I think people like to, you know, entertain in their minds. Love is a choice rather than an emotion. And the distinction is important. The distinction is important. An emotion is uh, something that comes upon us through instinct. 
An emotion is something that comes upon us through instinct. Um, your reaction to stimuli, what's happening around you and how you react to it. So stimuli that you see out there, like perhaps a hard-charging grizzly bear or a woman with a pretty face. Okay? Emotions are reactions that are hardwired into your DNA. Fear, sexual desire, okay? Now, when that hard-charging grizzly bear is coming at you, it could be a very different reaction depending on whether or not you too are a grizzly bear. Right? What was fear before could become sexual desire because it's hardwired into a grizzly bear. When, you know, when he, you know, she sees a hard-charging grizzly bear coming her way, she doesn't want to run away. She says, va 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 An emotion is something, <laughs> okay, well, they probably don't. <laughs> they probably do something different, but you get the drift. What I'm trying to get at is that emotion, emotion is something that just happens. It just happens. Now, husbands are told to make a choice to love their wives. The husband is told to love their wife. Let's take a look at Colossians 3, verse 19. Short and sweet. You can read it here for yourself. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's an imperative. Husbands, love your wives. It is a call to make a choice. If it just came up naturally... Why would God have to command you to do it? I tell you to do it. Furthermore, if love were not a matter of choice, then it really wouldn't be a very reasonable demand, would it? It wouldn't make any sense. God does not command husbands to feel about their wives a certain way. He commands, tells, instructs, however you want to put it. He tells us to love, which is a choice and a choice of how you will act and how you will interact. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Because some might say, well, haha, what is love? What is love? How am I supposed to love my wife? What does that mean? And it's, I think we get all messed up with our ideas about desire being love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, tells us love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. If there was any doubt in anyone's mind about what it means when God says, husbands, love your wives, that's the answer. That's how to love your wife. Patience, for example. Among that list. Patience is not an emotion. Patience is a choice. How am I going to react? How am I going to respond in this circumstance? 
kindness, gentleness. These are not feelings. They're decisions about how you're going to interact. Especially in situations when things aren't going your way, when you have to persevere, for example. This is the love that God expects and instructs husbands to show toward their wives. This is godly leadership. Godly leadership. God is very clear in the scriptures that the husband is tasked with the responsibility of leadership of his family. To fulfill that God-given commission, you must make a deliberate choice to love. That is how you fulfill the commission that you've been given. And that's godly leadership. Which means that you regulate the things that you do, which we've just heard expanded upon in 1 Corinthians. The model of leadership that Jesus gives us, furthermore, along these lines, and it was in the list that we read there in, in Corinthians 13, the model of leadership Jesus gave us is humility. Humility, which if you... You can take it in a lot of different directions, and we do. We talk about it an awful lot. An acceptance of the role that God gave you. The role that God gave to the husband. And then to fulfill that role and submit yourself to that role. And, you know, husband's under submission as well. He submits himself to that role and accepts the guidelines of that role which is godly love and godly leadership. So a godly leadership in the family concerns itself with the needs of others. What will benefit the whole family, your wife, your children, rather than satisfying your own self? Uh, being put in a position of leadership does not mean that, okay, that means I get to, I get to uh, tweak out my man cave, and that's top priority. No. No, that's you submit yourself to the role, which is that you take care of the needs of these others in your family. That's godly leadership, how you spend your money and how you spend your time. And you submit yourselves to these guidelines that are out there. Good decisions that are based on love are going to have a positive impact. They will leave your family feeling more secure and they will make it easier for them to show respect and to submit themselves to you, which we'll get around to. Now, on a cultural note, everybody knows that that's a very idealistic scenario. Everybody knows that, because you see the world around you and all its flaws and imperfections. Because many husbands over the centuries have failed to live up to God's standards, Sometimes it's just through ignorance, not even knowing any better. But even those who know better have at many times failed to live up to God's standards of loving leadership. Our society makes it, they draw a conclusion from that. And the conclusion that's drawn is, well, that must mean that the scriptural model given by God is flawed. It doesn't work. Because I see it out there and it's not working. This is the conclusion that people draw. Therefore, we need to try out new paradigms. And you'll see a lot of them out there. Well, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. 
Maybe if we flip it upside down and do it the complete opposite way, it'll work out better. And I think that this is what's, you know, what we, what we see. It's flawed, so let's try out something new. But the problem is not with the model. The problem is with the people. If we, if you and I, are truly followers of God, we must continue to follow his instructions and accept his teachings on the marriage model. And our belief and our practices and our teaching regarding family and family roles is biblical, not cultural. Biblical, not cultural. That's why we do what we do, say what we say. It's biblical, not cultural. Let's take a look at our third choice. The third choice is submission. Submission. Now, I've been kind of taking an approach of exploring the emotions that are involved here, and I'm going to do it again. What do you think the emotion that we want to talk about is? Fear. Fear. Ooh, that sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? Well, fear is an emotion. Yeah. Fear is an emotion, and fear is one of those emotions, and I, I'm drawing out fear here for a number of reasons. Fear is a natural, hardwired response to a threat. Again, remember the grizzly bear? You know, one of my responses there, I could be afraid, rightfully so, and it's just hardwired in me. You know, if I'm a juicy human and that, and that grizzly bear is coming my way, fear is going to just happen. It's built in. It's a natural, emotional response. Now, a person does not choose whether or not to fear, in my opinion. There's some, you know, pop psychology and, and Craig Scott opinion in here, but a person does not choose to fear or not to fear. I believe that one can choose what to fear and what not to fear. Or, put another way, to perhaps override one fear with an even greater fear, a more important fear. So I, I put it forward that fear is the emotional motivation of submission. Work with me, okay? Stay with me. <laughs> submission. What's submission? Well, submission is an act. It is something that we do, okay? And it's a choice. <coughs> submission is the choice that we make. How are we going to respond to this circumstance? To submit is a choice to arrange your relationship with another person, uh, putting yourself in subordination, if you will, uh, to obey, to yield to the decision of the other party in cases where there's no consensus or agreement. That's what submission is all about. And you submit to another because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't. Turn to Ephesians 5. Now, work with me on this, folks. I know this kind of has the potential to push your buttons, but work with me. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 24. It says here, Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body, which uh, he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
So wives are told to submit themselves to their husband. And if you are reading the scriptures the way I'm reading them, and I think that's the way they are meant to be understood, is to do so is to submit to God. That's your, that's the larger picture, okay? That's why you're doing what you do. Your wives are told to submit themselves to their husbands, and to do so is to submit to God. It says, submit to your husband as to the Lord, okay? Now, in Ephesians, let's drop down in the same chapter to verse 33. And it says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves as he loves himself, and the wife must, now I'm reading the NIV, and it says, must respect her husband. And if you're reading the King James, I, says, I think it says reverence. Yes. yes. The word is fear. That's the word that's really used there. Phobios, the Greek word phobios, from which we get, um, you know, arachnophobia, fear of spiders. The word is fear. And so you could, what you are hearing is wives are told to fear their husband. Again, work with me on this, okay? Wives are told to fear their husband. Now, why would a wife be told to fear her husband? Again, I said the word is phobios, and you'll find it translated as revere or respect. But I put it, I ask you this question. Um, if God's word wanted to say respect or reverence here, it could have. Because there's another word, very specific word, that's used for respect. Tima or timo. Could have used the word timo here, but it did not. God's word says phobios, which means fear. And I think, you know, we translate it as revere or respect and in some ways wallpaper over it a little bit and say well <laughs> we don't kind of want to deal with that right now because it does take a little bit of thought and a little bit of contemplation so that yeah there's a different word available that means respect but let's read the verse and explore the concept with the word fear phobios okay work with me men Men are rather scary. Okay, I see some of the women nodding. Yeah, men can be very scary. They have a deep voice. They're bigger. They're stronger. And very often driven by strange and violent passions. So fearing a man and submitting to him seems like a natural choice. You know, self-preservation. <laughs> I'm going to get along with this guy because he's, you know, bigger, stronger. He can, he can fly off the handle really easily. So to submit to a man in fear, huh, well, you know, self-preservation. And much of human history, and human history separated from God, has operated this way, with this basic idea. But if a man... Let's get back to God's ideal, okay? If a man is converted by the Spirit of God, truly converted by the Spirit of God, well, he's not going to be violent, and he's not going to be abusive. He's not going to have his way with people. 
What's he going to do? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians 4, 13, verse 4 through 7. He's going to be gentle and patient and kind. Why would anyone feel um, an instinctive fear of such a man? They would not, would they? I mean, it would be very easy to take a converted man and say, well, <laughs> I have nothing to fear from, you know, Charlie. He's not going to do anything. He's humble and, you know, gentle and kind. And I can do whatever I want. Right? There's no natural, uh, instinctive reason to fear such a man, a converted man. Unless you're told to. Now, why would you be told to? <laughs> Interesting. Without fear, of course, and let's you know, get back to this converted man. Without fear, why then would anyone submit themselves to such a person? Unless they were told to. You, wives, you submit to him because you have chosen to submit yourselves to a higher authority. That's why you do it, right? You have chosen to submit yourselves to a higher authority, which is God, your creator. To fear him. Let's get back to that fear word, phobios. You fear him. Why? Because you fear God. You fear God, who has the power to destroy body, soul, and spirit permanently in the lake of fire. You know the scripture I'm referring to, right? In Matthew. Fear God. Don't be afraid of man, or even this you know, Christian converted man. Really, <laughs> your fear is the fear of God. And you fear, like I mentioned earlier, you fear what happens if you don't do what needs to be done. So there's a fear there that is a better fear, which has replaced the other, as I mentioned before. You choose what to fear. So to fear God, if you want to go back to you know, some of the pop psychology type stuff I've been floating out there, to fear God is the ultimate act of self-preservation. To preserve, to save your life so that you might live and have eternal life. And as previously mentioned, a natural fear, a natural fear is replaced by a greater fear which is judgment from your creator. We tend to shy away from that, I think, too much in our, our world. And, you know, God definitely presents himself as judge and warns you, look, take this very seriously. Take this very seriously. And Jesus' own words are, fear God. He says an awful lot about love, but he also says, fear God. So how does submission work? How does submission work? Willing acknowledgement of the husband's role is, uh, I'll put it as the second key ingredient, probably, you know, they're equal value, love and submission. The second key ingredient for success in the godly and biblical model of marriage and family. So love and submission. Now that does not mean that he must make every decision. I've seen some people do that, and... Uh, you know, you can do that if you want. To me, it's a little awkward. <laughs> Many successful uh, couples will divide household responsibilities, for example, according to strengths and interests. 
And I, that's vague, I know. But it's a concept that I believe works. And some people divide it this way, and some people divide it that way, and some people divide it this way, according to strengths, interests, aptitudes, and abilities. And you can divide up your activities however you want. That's not for me to get involved with as, you, as your pastor. But the key and the goal and the concept to remember is working together, to work together. Uh, you would discuss major decisions in the household and priorities, submitting one to another, submitting one to another. Go, we're in Ephesians. Go back and take a look at uh, chapter 5, verse 21, which tells us, Submit to one another in fear of God. I don't know what your translation says. Again, some use the respect, reverence thing. But the wording there, if you go back to the original language, which is Greek, it says fear. You submit because you fear God. And this applies to husbands and wives. The husband has to submit himself to his role of loving, godly leadership, humility, Self-sacrifice. He has to submit himself to that. It's not like guys get off the hook. They have to submit just as much. They have to submit to that role and all that comes along with it. The directive to work together, to submit yourselves to one another, to be concerned about the well-being of the other party, what's driving that? The fear of God. You do these things because... You fear God. And, you know, worry, what will happen if I don't do these things? I'm not trying to say that love is not part of the, you know, godly love, agape, and all that is not part of the equation, but God's word clearly says, fear God. Now, if, if however, the husband elects, and there's this decision-making discussion and all this kind of stuff, if the husband elects to make the final judgment on whatever matter it might be in question, then the wife should honor it. That's what submitting yourself means, okay? Submitting yourself to the husband as the head of the family, submission to authority. Plenty of times, though, the husband, you husbands and me, I'm a husband too, show greater wisdom in deferring to the preferences of their wife or their children. The greater wisdom is very often to say, you know, yeah, but they really want this thing. Okay? Just because he has the right to make decisions doesn't mean that he should. It doesn't mean that he should. Think about all the decisions that take place in a family and in life. So many decisions that we make, so many of them, are really just matters of, of taste and style and personal preference. So many of them, that's all it really boils down to. Taste and style and personal preference. Well, I prefer it this way. Well, I want to paint the walls blue. No, I want peach. Matter of style and preference. A wise husband should be sensitive to the desires and the preferences of his family. As long as they don't violate family and especially godly standards. That's what matters. If you, <laughs> I mean, if you've ever wielded authority, you know that you wield it lightly and, you know, wield it when it's necessary. 
you try and wield your authority over every minute little thing that happens at work, if you're in a you know, position of authority, you undermine your authority. You make decisions when it matters, not when it doesn't matter. <clears throat> submission. Again, how does it work? Well, submission is a choice. It's not a feeling. You don't submit because you feel like it today. I'm not feeling like it tomorrow. Submission is a choice, not a feeling. The wife must consciously decide to submit herself and then to use that principle, that guideline, uh, as, a, as a guide for her words and her deeds, what she says and what she does. Will she undermine her husband with snarky comments? Will she usurp her husband by doing an end run around him? Will she focus on and admire his good qualities or focus on and despise his weaknesses? It's a choice. Conflict and communication. New subject, new topic. Conflict and communication, because you know, this is all very ideal. <laughs> Very idealistic. Conflict and communication. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Using the guidelines of godly love and godly submission, both husband and wife should regulate the words that come out of their mouths. I mean, it's good to regulate the thoughts that go on your, in your head. They're a little harder. But definitely work to regulate the words that come out of your mouths. Couples whose communication is positive. <laughs> this will seem so obvious to you, but I gotta say it. Couples whose communication is positive and encouraging are more likely to have a good relationship. Okay? Couples whose words are negative and critical are more likely to have a poor relationship. It seems so so obvious when you say it out loud like that, but I, you know, how, do we really live it and breathe it and do it? Um, one set of stats that I read <coughs> showed that young couples who ended up staying together had fewer than five out of each 100 comments that were critical of the others. All right, so five or less was an indicator. Well, these people have a good chance of staying together. Young couples who later divorced people who were on the road, the rocky road to trouble, had 10 or more critical comments out of every 100. Now what struck me about these statistics was, that's not a very wide margin, is it? We're not talking about 60-40, 70-30, or anything like that. We're talking about five out of 100 is a good indicator. 10 out of 100, that's a bad sign. So even people who have the majority of their comments being positive have to watch out. Positive communication is really important. Negative communication is very, very bad. That's a, not a good sign. Now we've all heard the pitch that arguing is healthy and natural. Haven't you heard that? <laughs> yeah. You need to get it off your chest. You need to get it out in the open. Don't keep it inside. Don't let it just brew in there and it's gonna just fester and get all rotten. Let it out, right? You've heard that. 
And sometimes it's even touted as proof of passion. You know? Now I know you love me because you care. It's proof of passion. You know? Think of the great makeup sex. You've heard that kind of stuff, right? It's just all over the place. But constant arguing is really an indicator of a marriage that is headed for trouble. It is headed for trouble. Passionate they may be, but arguments, well, they lower the mutual respect that is necessary for success. You argue and your respect for the other person starts to go down. Just that's the way it works. Arguing also builds up resentment. Yeah, I remember what you said two years ago. I haven't forgotten. Arguing is, it's just a terrible choice. A terrible choice. Now, the biblical model for conflict resolution, because conflicts happen. They're going to happen. The biblical model for conflict, conflict resolution is reconciliation and forgiveness, not impassioned arguments. That is not the biblical model. Let's take a look at uh, four principles to apply to conflict when conflict comes. Okay, these are actually really, really simple. Really, really, really simple. Four principles to apply towards conflict. The first, talk matters out. Now you might think, well, didn't you just say we shouldn't argue? Well, there's a, there's, there's a difference here. To talk matters out, but to regulate the way you talk. To regulate the way you talk. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 1. Great proverb. One that you should have in your mind all the time. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. There's so much more that the Proverbs say about how you communicate with people. They all fall in that basic category, though, that you... Okay, let's go back to the talk matters out, because that's where we were. Express your beliefs and your concerns, but with kindness, with gentleness and consideration for the other party. And a healthy fear of what will happen if you don't. <laughs> for the God's sake and for the sake of your own marriage. Talk matters out. Another thing, don't refuse to talk about or address matters. Now, you might you know, have heard, well, don't argue. That means I should just shut up and never talk about it. No, that's not the point. The point is, yes, indeed, talk about things, but do it in the right way, the right attitude, with the right approach. So don't, don't just put them aside, saying, well, no, I don't want to engage, because you know, that's, 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 that's bad. Uh, you'll you'll not, not do well with that. Another thing is when you are talking, respect differences in your mate. Remember what I said about decisions and how so many of them are just a matter of taste and style and stuff like that? That's the same with communications. People communicate different ways. And they um, very often, you know, <laughs> I found that someone says or says something to me, and my mind says, yeah, if I was saying that the way you're saying it, I would have meant this. That's not what they meant, though. Email's a great example where, you know, you get this message that comes over, 
um, <clears throat> and you read it and you pour all your own emotions into it and you think, oh, you, that's not what they meant at all. Everybody has a different way to communicate. So try and learn that way, of course, but respect the fact that people are different. So when you're talking things out, people have different styles. Okay, I said four principles to apply. The other is win-win uh, solutions. Sounds like I'm back in the 90s. Win-win solutions. You, I don't know if people use that catchphrase very much anymore, but what we're talking about here is, um, I think some people approach a conflict uh, you know, as total domination is the goal. Every last point on my agenda must be met or I have not won. Total domination is not the goal. A win-win solution is one where there's something in it for both parties, okay? So look for solutions that are acceptable to both parties. Philippians 2, verse 4. And again, we're not talking about God's law here. We're not talking about, um, you know, whether or not you agree on what adultery means or something like that. We're talking about matters of taste and style and opinion and where it's not a matter of obedience to God's word. But look for solutions that are acceptable to both parties. Philippians 2, verse 4 says... Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's part of the definition of Christ's humility. That's how we find success in our interactions with people and our ways to deal with conflict. Looking for solutions that are acceptable to both parties. Another great point on win-win solutions be willing to yield when the choice or the actions, again, is not in conflict with God's instructions. Not in conflict with God's instructions. Um, there aren't really biblical examples of anyone arguing over paint chips or anything like that, but the concept is there if you look at um, Matthew 5, verse 9. We've read this before. It just says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The one who makes peace and who does it, makes it happen. And then another good example of this, uh, Corinthians 6, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, part of a long uh, section where Paul's dealing with this stuff that's happening in the local congregation. People are arguing about stuff, and they're going to the local law. They're going to the Greek magistrate or whatever, and they're saying, you know, I want to sue you. You know, it'd be like me suing Tom for something. And we go to court, and, you know, and Paul is saying, what in the world are you doing? You can read the larger section, but if you look at verse 7 of chapter 6, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have not, that you have been completely defeated already. You've lost the vision. And then he goes on to say, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated than go to court with your brother? So be willing to yield. Now, I'm assuming that there were points on this. I think it was, my, my guess is it's about inheritance rights and things like that, which is not a, really a matter of <clears throat> God's commandments or anything like that. So be willing to yield. Let it go. You don't have to win every point. Okay, principles to apply to conflict. Uh, the third one, forgive. Forgiveness. I mean, nothing, <laughs> no rocket science here. It's all pretty, pretty straightforward stuff. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Think of it in a very practical way. You forgive um, so that they will forgive you when you inevitably mess up yourself. 
you're kind of setting the stage for them to forgive you down the road, which is good. You're greasing the wheels for success. You also forgive so that God will forgive you. Matthew 6, verse 15 would say that. You can look it up on your own to forgive. Forgive others so that God will forgive you. Um, forgiveness, another good point, tactical point, is when pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness to approach your mate with the right spirit, the right you know, body language, the right tone of voice and things like that. It makes a lot of difference. If you're struggling with that, ask God to restore your attitude. And God will do that. Um, Psalm 51 verse 10 is an example of prayer to God. About, Fix my attitude. The way I'm feeling and thinking about this. Again, I think the psalm is about something more dire. But uh, the principle is seeking God's input and help on your attitude. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Help me with my attitude. One last point on forgiveness. Don't let negative emotions rule you. Don't let your emotions rule you, period. But don't let negative emotions rule you. You want to act toward and speak toward your mate with honor, showing honor to the other. Show honor to the other. And your emotions will affect your actions, and your actions will affect your emotions. It's kind of like a, a cycle. The fourth point, and hopefully we don't get to this, seek help. If none of the previous three points are doing any good, ask for counseling. The book of Proverbs, there are many places where it says, seek knowledge, seek wisdom. And it also says, in a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. Get another opinion. Sometimes people are just, they've just got bad practices. They're just bad habits. And someone outside can help them find them and see them. Um, you might be doing things that are very simple that you yourself are not even aware of. The principle, that all these principles roll together in, a, in an overarching idea, which is working together. Working together. Well, unity and harmony are God's ideal for all relationships, all relationships. You and your mate, you and your creator. They're driven by the same principles. Working together, you and your mate can accomplish more than you would independently. So one last section. This will be our last section here. Let's take a look at a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Turn to Acts 18. A very effective couple in God's church. Cool. Acts 18, verses 2 and 3. There he, that's Paul, met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So they knew Paul, they worked together with Paul as, you know, in this trade. And then in verse 18, it says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Achilla. So they were, they were involved in what Paul was doing, his evangelical or missionary work, however you want to describe it. This couple were involved in it. 
In uh, chapter 18, verse 24, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So they were involved in this effort in the church, helping other people. And it's, I think it's fascinating that they are continually referred to, you know, this couple that are working together, this team working together. 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. They were tent makers. They were, you know, making money. They had a house, and they used that as a meeting place for the church. So here's this couple, and they're this doing stuff in the church. And they're a real blessing and a real benefit to the church. One last scripture on them is Romans 16. Verses 3 through 4. As part of Paul's long ending section here, greeting everybody, he says, Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So here's this couple. They are kind of known as a couple. You don't really hear about them being talked about separately. It's a couple, you know. Bob and Linda, you know, Ted and Alice, you just always think of these people together as a couple. And, you know, many of us, that's the way we think of other people. I think of you as a couple. I think of you as a couple. I think of you as a couple. And you work together. So in Romans 16, verses 3 and 4, what we find there is they were loved and they were respected for their work in the church. And they had a dramatic impact on those around them. And I would, I'm guessing that part of their working together as a couple had something to do with that. It was a great example. I, I would assume that it's because they saw the big picture, and that their marriage was an extension of God's work in the world. And by working together, their marriage was a blessing to the church and an example of that profound truth that we read about in Ephesians 5 that profound truth, which is Christ and the church, a relationship and working together. The profound truth, which is Christ and the church, which is his bride, his wife. So, marriage is a choice. Choose to have a successful marriage. Choose to be a blessing to the church. 